Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. The Adams family is one of the more prominent families in American history. And no, I'm not talking about Morticia and Gomez, but John, Abigail, John Quincy, and everyone in between. The Adamses were at the center of the American Revolution. They helped to create a new republic, shape that young nation's foreign policy, and later were central to the development of the history profession. Fortunately, we know much about their lives because of the countless letters and diaries they've left us. And it's up to a team of editors at the Massachusetts Historical Society to make sense of it all. On today's show, Dr. Sarah Giorgini joins me to talk about what it's like to edit the Adams Family Papers. Giorgini is series editor for the Papers of John Adams, and she is also the author of Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. We're joined today by my co-host, Dr. Ann Furtick, the Washington Library's Digital Projects Editor. So put your transcription hat on and let's edit the Adams Family Papers with Dr. Sarah Giorgini. Independence forever. Well, that's a great place to start because we are barreling towards the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, which really is July the 2nd, as we all know, not July 4th, for Pete's sake. But you have the distinct honor of editing John Adams and the Adams Family Papers. So you're a documentary editor. Now, I think when you hear that term, some people might think documentary editor as in you're working on a Ken Burns film, but this is a whole other different animal. So what does it actually mean to be a documentary editor of the kinds of papers that you're working with? Thanks for asking, Jim. And thanks for noticing correctly that July 2nd is the day that we should all mark with fireworks, games, and celebrations. We know this because John Adams wrote it in his papers, which are preserved here at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And part of our mission as documentary editors is both to preserve those public and private papers of the past and to make them accessible to as many people as possible. When we do something like that, we have a chance to rewrite our national narrative, to bring in new voices beyond the Adams family, who they interacted with, who were part of that drive for independence. And we have the chance to hear them relate the past in their own words. And that's what documentary editors do. We transcribe, annotate, index, publish, make widely available those papers. In the Adams Family Papers alone, we have a quarter of a million manuscript pages. That's about 608 reels of microfilm. And while we welcome you to come here and research amid all that microfilm, manuscripts, and material culture of the Adams Family here at the MHS, we also know that making it available as both a letterpress and digital edition is one way to connect people with those turning points in the American past and to rethink them as we move from 1776 all the way to 2026. There are many different types of professions in the broad history tent, you know, professors, people like us at the Washington Library working in digital humanities. So how did you become interested in this line of work? Why be a documentary editor? One of the things that I think is really interesting when you talk to other documentary editors is that a lot of people kind of stumble into this part of the profession. I always knew I wanted to work in public history, where I have the chance to be a people's professor, where I have a chance to connect with students of American history at all ages and all stages. And I think that 
the first time I really encountered the Adams Papers editorial project, I was working in the library here at the MHS, and my job was to do a lot of front desk coverage. So buzzing in researchers, saying hello to tourists. And a lot of them had questions about John Adams and about Abigail Adams. And they were fans of the HBO miniseries, which is, of course, based on David McCullough's magisterial storytelling of John Adams and his experiences, which is in turn based on the Adams papers. And so in order to really effectively aid people at the front desk, I started to do some reading in the Adams Papers volumes, especially a really wonderful kind of greatest hits of the letters between Don and Abigail that the project produced called My Dearest Friend. I just kind of read through it and I thought, this is wonderful. I want to eavesdrop on more of these conversations. How do you do that? And when a job opening came up as the editorial assistant, kind of the first rung on the ladder, I jumped at it here in the Adams Papers. I had the good fortune to work my way up while I was pursuing my PhD in history and eventually become series editor. So it was something where documentary editing was something I didn't know much about. I was really attracted to the idea of helping to connect people with primary sources. And it became deeply entwined with my doctoral work, with my first book, Household Gods, and with the course of my career. And almost 14 years later, I'm still here and very happily wading through the love letters and state secrets that you can read in the Adams Family Papers. I like the state secrets. That sounds good. I, I want to ask about the entire process of starting to edit a document and then publishing a volume from start to finish. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of the scope of the Adams Papers project, you mentioned you know, a quarter million documents. What does this all encompass? Who is involved in the actual work? And who are the figures you're editing? So I'll start with the stars we've all met before, John and Abigail Adams. So the second president and second first lady, but certainly first in our hearts here in the editorial project. And the project span is really focused on John and Abigail's papers and those of their descendants, about 10 generations worth of an American family who prioritized public service, foreign service, diplomacy, arts criticism in the later generations. It's a really eclectic and interesting way to go behind the scenes of American history, to trace this family from their arrival here in the latter part of the 17th century in Massachusetts Bay all the way through, and there's still Adams's afoot in Massachusetts, very much involved in arts, letters, and law, to the 20th century. So you have this incredible 300-year story. I like to think of it as, you know, Adams's as your personal tour guides through American history. They narrate it in public and private letters. They narrate it in diaries, in latter generations, in all forms of material culture and photographs really kind of an interesting family who very purposefully wrote for the archive. This was a family who understood and constantly questioned if how their family was developing was in line or challenging American democracy or refining it. They very much saw their family story in alignment at times with the ways to shape and guide the American Union. This I thought was fascinating because we might look at this and say, aha, a political dynasty. But that was not exactly something you wanted to be in early America. That smacked of royalty, right? Didn't sound very democratic at all. So the Adamses are interesting because 
they're popular, they're not popular. <laughs> they go through different cycles of political success, of diplomatic triumph, of great personal loss. That's something that all comes across in their letters. You have a really fantastic set of voices, women and men alike, young and old in this family, commenting on what it's like to be an American. And I think that speaks to kind of the intellectual scope as well as the chronological breadth that we cover here in the Adams Papers. So how do you tackle an archive like that? Well, the first thing that happened when the Adams Papers editorial project began in the 1950s was to separate out the documents. I love this story. The first editor-in-chief, Lyman H. Butterfield, was sitting in kind of a darkened MHS in the evenings, unwrapping brown paper packages of manuscripts that the family would drop off. It's like a real harvest of manuscripts, but they would come and drop things off, and it was just kind of a gathering point for Adam's family manuscripts. We separated out into three editorial tracks. The first one is the diary series. This is the Adamses in their own words. John Adams has a diary. Abigail briefly keeps a diary in the 1780s in Europe. But really, the all-star rock star of diarists in the Adams family is John Quincy Adams, the sixth president. And you can read his transcribed diaries online at the MHS website. I encourage everyone because I think no one really better narrates the experience of a country moving from revolution to republic than this guy. Definitely check them out. So that's the first check. That's the, the diaries track. The second series is the Adams Family Correspondence. And in this series, Abigail is the unrivaled star. She's about to turn things over to her daughter-in-law, Louisa Catherine Adams, who is another first lady we are exceptionally interested in building a better profile of. And this is the series where you find kind of the juicy social history of the day. If there's gossip about what's going on in politics, what women are wearing or not wearing at Philadelphia parties, what Abigail really thinks about the optics of her husband's politics in the press and how to shape them, the Adams Family Correspondent Series is where to go. And then finally, there's my series, which is the Papers of John Adams. And this is the series that really, I think, dramatically recounts the saga of what it's like to go from New England lawyer to world-class diplomat to somewhat maligned vice president, and then, of course, his presidency. And really, a retirement where he reunites with Thomas Jefferson and others to reflect on his career. So the papers have war and peace, popularity, press, politics, some tussles with his cabinet, and everything in between. That's a great summary. And what I always like about John is, you know, he does get a bad rap for his presidency, but he, you know, he kind of does save the day there at the end by keeping the United States out of the war with France, or at least calling the French bluff with the XYZ affair. So I'm so glad you raised that. This is exactly the volume and the set of documents that we're working on right now, which is the first year that he's in office and the first notes really being sounded in the quasi-war. What's remarkable to me reading these documents is that in our selection, when we choose how many letters to put in a volume, we usually look at about six, 700 documents, and we end up running about 400 of them. You might wonder, 
what happens to those other 300? If you go on Founders Online, you'll find rough transcriptions. They're also widely available elsewhere, often in other published works or via our microfilm and manuscript collections. So there's ways to read them. And we usually don't run a letter if, say, it's, hey, thanks for the books. If it's something that we can kind of weave into annotation elsewhere in the volume, we think about how to leverage that information and provide it with rich historical context in a better place. We're just working on this period now, and we're running a bunch of letters that really aren't letters. They're memoranda. They're John Adams sitting and thinking through, sometimes with his cabinet, sometimes not, how he's going to deal with the question of France. There has been a steady onslaught of French depredations against American commerce. Adams isn't quite sure what to do. His cabinet doesn't fully agree on what to do. And so we're running a bunch of letters that are his loose, very first drafty kinds of thoughts about how to approach this question. And you can see him trying to reason his way through it because he is desperate to avoid a war. He has no real army, navy, or money for either of those things to count on. So it's a really interesting moment where he is desperate to preserve these very shredded Franco-American relations, but he is cognizant of what this means for him politically, which is not good news. Now, as you said, only a certain number of documents will make it into the final volume. Tell us a little bit about how those decisions get made. I mean, you alluded to the fact that if it's like, well, thanks for the books, that was great. You know, you can you can fold that in elsewhere. But I like to imagine that there are vicious fights amongst you editors on any given night where you're just excoriating each other over whether or not one letter gets in or one letter does not. That's probably <laughs> over-exaggeration. But are there substantive debates about what stays and what goes? The debates are often not so much about if a letter is going to run or not, it's which series it's going to run in. So what counts as a public letter? What counts as a private letter? And we're actually in a period in the late 1790s, early 1800s, where the correspondence between John Adams and John Quincy Adams is particularly fraught on this question. JQA, as he signs his letters, and we like to call him, is a very serious junior diplomat at this point. He's at The Hague. He's providing very useful intel on what's going on with French politics and Napoleon's sweep through Europe. When he writes to his father, the question is, is that a son writing to his father or a diplomat reporting to his president? These are the kinds of debates that we have. What tips a letter toward public or private. And often the rubric that we follow, which we've laid out in our editorial method in our volumes, and we constantly revisit. So you always rethink this with every volume. You want some consistency between volumes, but also the documents tell you what to do to some degree. And the manuscripts are going to change as people age and their positions change. The way we think about it is to say, is JQA shaping policy somehow? Is there a moment where he is asking his father for something that only a president could deliver? Is there a moment where John Adams is a pass-through, where he turns over JQA's intelligence to someone higher up the chain? And in fact, this is exactly what happens when the first kind of Franco-American depredations roll in. 
He takes JQA's letters, he scoops them up, and the same day he gets them, he passes them to George Washington. And Washington reviews them. He says, you know, he really trusts JQA. He sees great future marks for him in the State Department. And he really does shape kind of the last little bit of his foreign policy around what JQA recommends. So there's a moment where absolutely I can make a positive argument for why that should run in, say, the state papers and the papers of John Adams rather than in family correspondence because he's shaping policy. I don't know if it's it's a violent debate, but I think it's something that we certainly have extended thoughtful conversations about. If you really want to know where the big editorial battle royales come in, that's the last stage of the book, which is indexing. I have a question about how do you deal with the gaps in the archive? Maybe things that are partially destroyed, maybe letters that reference another letter that you cannot find, maybe even just those little words that are illegible for one reason or another. Like, What's your process? Ooh, that's a good question. I'd say with total honesty, first of all, because part of what we do as documentary editors in terms of relating history, we're also meant to be transparent about what the archive does and doesn't have. After we've created a reliable transcription of a manuscript, we look around to see what other versions exist of it. And sometimes that helps us with the missing word. And it can be missing for all kinds of reasons. It can be someone cut up the manuscript to sell John Adams' signature. It can be wear at the edge. It can be tightly bound in the papers of the Continental Congress. There's all kinds of reasons that manuscripts are not quite in same day condition, right? Especially when they come from the 18th century. We explore drafts. We compare file copies. We look to see if we can insert maybe one word. John Adams had the bright idea when he was at the Second Continental Congress to start keeping a letter book because he felt like he needed some kind of reference work wherever he went of what he had said to people on paper, which is great for us. Those letter books went everywhere. They went to Paris. They went to The Hague. They went to London. They went back to Quincy again, onto the new city of Washington, D.C., back and forth to Philadelphia and even Jersey. We compare the letter book copy. We see what we're missing. We're also honest if we just can't get the word. We bracket it in the text and we tell you with a little ellipse of three little dots to say it's one word that's missing. If there's four little dots, it's two words or more. We kind of leave a, an open path for readers to become researchers. So I'd love for people to go look at the manuscript and say, hey, I got that word that you couldn't get. That is great. But our process, and this comes after, this kind of answers your, your question of working through different stages of the editorial process. After transcription, we have a process called collation, where two teams of editors sit, one with the manuscripts and one with the transcription, and you read out every non-standard punctuation, every word, every 18th century spelling. So you get their voices in your head, which is kind of fun, but you also are creating an authentic, verified transcription. The other thing that we have to kind of help us out with the greater archival gaps is annotation. So those very helpful little notes that run at the bottom of the manuscript in our volumes kind of tell you a little bit about the people, places, and things that are occurring in the Adams universe in each particular letter. 
The last thing I'll say, because you, you were talking about kind of what can happen to manuscripts, there are absolutely burners in the family. So Charles Francis Adams talks about pitching stuff into the stone library fireplace from time to time. This is absolutely a case where some things are destroyed. There are some family members who meet very tragic young ends, and their documents are not extant. In other cases, and I wish we had more, John Adams' daughter, Nabby, her descendants, there's a family house fire, and a lot is burned in the 19th century that isn't saved. So it's a combination of things, some intentional, some accidental. The other thing to remember is, and I think this is the great boon of creating a modern documentary edition, is that when the Adams Family Letters first came to print in the 19th century, minus an index, they were crafted by Charles Francis Adams, a very Victorian editor. Women were not ever pregnant. Babies kind of appeared in the pages. Things were just kind of excised or edited out, especially if they had unsavory kind of political ties. It's a very heavily edited collection. A modern documentary edition shows all. You have kind of the full unedited sweep of the family's experiences. So we address some of the gaps that were created, some of the gaps that happened. But that being said, I would encourage people to know that Adam's letters are always showing up in archives elsewhere, coming up for auction. We'd love to know about them. Let us know. And probably even better, you know, hopefully donate those finds to the Massachusetts Historical Society. That's a wonderful idea, Jim. Thank you. I want to pick back up on the annotation thread, because one of the things you've been talking about is the work that goes in not only to transcribing these documents, but then the labor required to annotate and give context to these letters. It might be easy, right, to annotate everything. There's so many different names mentioned in some of these letters, so many different concepts, particularly with this family, a family of lawyers and politically astute people, men and women. How do you decide what to annotate and what not to annotate? What is too much and what is not enough? We have kind of a a guiding idea about annotation, which is in a delicious book, it's the frosting, right? The most important thing is the verified transcription that you're providing. But that frosting is kind of nutritional, right? So it's meant to tell you about the people, places, and events that the Adamses are experiencing and shaping themselves. A congressman who makes a brief cameo may not get a full identification, kind of the full works of birth, death, education, geographical origin. But a congressman who I know is going to tussle with the Adams family or the Adams agenda, or someone who they have a personal relationship with, someone who's part of one of the big stories in the book, then they're absolutely going to get a little bit fuller treatment. We think about those other kinds of pieces of annotation, literary references, translations, whether it's Latin, Greek, or French, we try to provide those for our readers. We do run French language letters with really excellent translations, I have to say. And we do try to place that in bigger international context because foreign diplomacy is a huge multi-generational story for the Adams family. It's important to orient readers to what they're dealing with and to know what kind of information they were able to absorb and act on. So that's something we really do try to focus on. 
But every book has maybe three or four main stories. And generally, by the time we're through collation, which is a process that usually takes about four or five months, you're doing it about three hours a day. By the time you're through that and you've kind of read out loud, okay, we're talking about this again, you have a really good sense of what the big stories are. Then you kind of step back. My job as a series editor is to step back and look at the narrative pacing and how that thread plays out in sequence in the volume. Now, the thing about a documentary edition is you can't always start it and end it plot-wise where you want to. Some of it means that, you know, you have a certain amount of space, you have a certain amount of letters, you are trying to contain it to some degree. But you often can. You'll see that a lot of times our volumes, once you get into this period, swing between congressional sessions because when they're home for the summer, they're doing kind of some fun writing, but mostly they're farming. But that may change over, over time. So with annotation, we think about what would someone want to know? Sometimes you'll get kind of 18th century pop culture references, phrases that you don't think that they would have used. In the last volume, we had um, John Adams talking about every Tom, Dick, and Harry, which was a phrase I didn't really think of as an 18th century phrase. And then in this volume, he's talking about Jefferson and the election of 1796 and letting the cat out of the bag. These kinds of things that don't need annotation, but they surprise you. If there's something that is a reference to a published work or an artwork or a play, because the Adamses, like me, love theater, then we do try to help people out with that. If it's a biblical reference or another religious reference, we may call it out as well. We try to orient people as much as we can. The other thing that I'll say is when something is just peculiarly and singularly 18th century, and I think particularly of John Adams' masterful negotiation of the Dutch American loans. And I must have covered those contracts and the terms of them, which are a very distinct kind of interest and a distinct kind of terminology that's associated with a multi-generational Dutch banking family that relies on an extremely 18th century version of business. That took a lot of research. And, you know, that's something that was a fun challenge. But I think for a reader, learning the ins and outs of how people did business like that in the 18th century, that's where annotation is invaluable. You'll kind of click into these 18th century stories that are some well-known and some not, but they were so important and so endemic to the way that John Adams shaped his political career. I think I learned a lot about colonial lawyering at first to understand how the courts operated in New England. So when he's riding circuit, how much that changes when his sons are riding circuit 30 years later, like things like that are just so useful to know. And the letters in the papers really unveil that story. I really like what you said about the fact that the Adamses like theater and you like theater. It made me wonder about how much you bring yourself to the annotation in a volume. When we're writing a book or an article, you know, there is a reflection of ourselves in that work, inevitably. So do you find yourself gravitating more towards particular topics that speak to you? Uh, and then maybe they get more of an annotation than, say, I don't know, the Navy or something like that. Like our colleague Rhonda Barlow loves John Adams in the Navy. And so I would expect her work to reflect that. But maybe the, the Giorgini volumes have more theater in them. We're very fortunate that Rhonda Barlow writes annotation for the papers of John Adams. And I am delighted to say that 
many of the naval history notes come directly from her pen, a great blessing. There's also a diversity of interest in the Adams paper staff, and we do actually consult folks who are a little more specialized in one field than another. I think that this kind of gets to a deeper question about how historians do work. And I would say, bring all of yourself to the research table. Really, if there's something that you love to do that you have a passion for, a language that you know, an art that you pursue, it is perfectly fine to bring that to the research table. I I encourage people always to do that. I do think that it's worth cultivating those specializations, especially in the annotation. And I think that I also seek out what isn't necessarily my specialization. I, I wouldn't say that Dutch financial history was something that I had a chance to study in graduate school, nor is it something that I knew much about. But we had a roster of great scholars to turn to when it came to something like that. And it really helped me understand what was at stake for John Adams every time he made a loan. Because here is something that I think is just really, really interesting. When he starts to negotiate these loans, he's far from home. The Continental Congress has really spotty agreement on everything. They have slow mail to deal with to get him instructions and his salary. He ties his own fortune literally to the interest in the loan. Like if that loan doesn't come through, he's not getting paid. And he does that more than once. And this is the thing that makes the Dutch bankers trust him. And they say, come and sign the obligations. Literally, he sits and signs 2,000 slips of paper. And he does this well into the 1780s. He'll go and sign off on it. But you really start to understand this is someone who believes so much that he stakes his livelihood and he writes himself, essentially, his salary into the contract, which is not a great salary. I mean, he's just barely getting by. When you revisit that phrasing of their lives, their fortune, their sacred honor, he really does that. So for all that it seems like, ah, yes, the dryness of Dutch financial history in the 18th century, it actually enlivened and illuminated how I understood how deeply, deeply committed he was. I'm fascinated by what you keep alluding to learning through this entire process. And I think, you know, sometimes with friends and family, there's an idea, right? You spring a fully formed historian from your PhD, but really having the luxury to to spend time with one set of texts of a family like this. What have you learned? What is most surprising or most new to you that you've picked up over the process of editing these letters? I think how challenging family history is to do and to do well. A lot of us start out as historians, as undergraduates, as hobbyists, as enthusiasts. You know, you click on Ancestry.com, working your way through family trees. You're trying to situate it in the political and cultural history of more than one nation, usually, different languages. I learned how difficult that is to develop as a skill. We do so much research trying to both plant and uproot the Adamses because they're constantly traveling. And so understanding the cultures that they're moving through and what they thought they knew of those cultures, which is also really, really interesting to me, that has been a challenge. I will say that aside from how skillful and how nuanced you have to be when you do and write family history, 
The other thing that I've learned is that you will go back to the same primary sources over and over again, and you will see them a little bit differently. And that is not only okay, that is awesome. We should all go back to whether it's John Adams saying it's the 2nd of July, we should be celebrating and rethink that. Whether it's Abigail Adams saying, remember the ladies and let's revisit that. We have the chance here to do so many terrific teacher and student workshops where we are doing show and tells with manuscripts and material culture. And that dialogue about the past that I get to do every single time I have a conversation with people, I see something new. And I think that that is something that I really welcome people to understand. Revisit a primary source and don't do it alone. Invite people in to kind of have a conversation about it. If I could build off of Anne's question just a little bit then, let's say there is somebody already out there sitting at a desk as you did when you were in graduate school and didn't necessarily think that documentary editing could be a career, but like you may have encountered it over the course of you know doing the job you were being paid to do at the time, what steps might they take to become the next Sarah Giorgini? The first step is learn how to transcribe. Practice looking at old documents, get involved in crowdsourced transcription projects that say the Library of Congress does, or plenty of other institutions, including the MHS and the Boston Public Library. We're always eager for volunteers to help out on that. Get used to looking at cursive, thinking about how to render exactly what someone said. And then secondly, get involved in your local history organization, whatever it may be, a historic home a museum, an art gallery, an archive, and kind of learn how archives are made and unmade. Learn your way around to finding aid. Who creates it and why? What are the gaps in it? As you say, that's exactly right. Think about the silences in the archives that you're going to encounter. And then third, talk about history. Anywhere, everywhere, to anyone. Find out who else cares about these kinds of subjects, whether it's at an annual conference like the American Historical Association. And we work so often as documentary editors with the good folks at SHEER, the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic. Really talk to people and learn their perspectives on this period, but do it from the point of view of someone with primary sources in your pockets, because that's kind of how you're approaching this. It's a very primary source-centric kind of field. That means you are both shaping the scholarship because you're making primary sources available, but you need to be in touch with the historiography that's developing. Finally, when you're at those conferences, meet all the undergraduate and graduate students you can, learn about new work, follow them on social media if they're up for it, really start a conversation about what you want to bring to the table with these primary sources and and think creatively about it. The question that I would like to turn to, actually, is you you published Household Gods, your excellent book on the religious lives of the Adams family, about what, two, three years ago now, I think? Three years ago, now available in paperback. Excellent. And we we did a nice live stream, which was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And and I recall earlier this year, you saying that you had started a next project or you're working on a new project. Is that correct? And if so, do we get a little taste of that now? I am working on a brand new project. This is the first time I get to talk about it. I am writing about the American Library in Paris, a 20th century hub for librarians who seek to save the world, and a few of them are spies. 
So stay tuned for <laughs> a very exciting kind of story that moves from John Adams Paris all the way to now. That sounds delightful and that will appeal to many people. Do we get a sense of when that will come out? Well, I'm just in the research and writing stages, so hopefully in the next two years. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I recently had the chance to write about Abigail Adams and George Washington and their relationship. So I'd highly recommend that folks check out a new edited collection by Charlene Boyer Lewis and George Pedro called Women in George Washington's World. This was such a fun book to be part of. And I really got to compare and contrast Abigail and George's political styles, which is, is not something I always get to do. So I'd encourage folks to check it out if they'd like a, a fun read with Abigail. Well, she might be eclipsing George in places, but you'll have to read to find out. More conversations after the break. Sarah, what book are you reading right now? I am reading Stacy Schiff's biography of Cleopatra, just for a change of pace. So Stacy Schiff, we are delighted to welcome to the MHS in conversation this fall on her new biography about Sam Adams. And because I always do the reading, I wanted to scout around. I'd read The Witches. And so I really wanted to see what she had to say about this woman who was an incredible political visionary, a queen at 18, lets kingdoms and empires come and go, and then is gone with nearly nary a primary source. And I thought, well, how do you build a biography out of that? So I guess I'm kind of attracted, moving away from the quarter of a million manuscript pages, to how you build something out of that as a story. So I've been really enjoying it too. There's so many classical references that pop up in the Adams papers, and I like to keep up to speed a little bit if I can. Stacy's biography really is a fascinating and colorful read. Yet another book for the book pile. Who is the author you most admire? This changes every week. I feel like I could shipwreck on this question for several hours in a whole new podcast. Right now, because I'm immersing myself in 20th century Paris, and there's a woman named Janet Flanner, who was a correspondent, the Paris correspondent for many years for The New Yorker from about 1925 to 1975. Early Americanists who listen to this podcast will enjoy that her codename byline was Jeanette, but she really profiled in exquisite prose the changing political culture of France for half a century. She palled around with people like Picasso, Brock, Jean Cocteau, Ernest Hemingway, you name it, she knew them and she wrote about them with style and panache. So I've really just been enjoying her Paris Journal, which covers really the 1940s to the 1960s. I'd highly recommend it. You are working with documents on a regular basis. So this might be a tricky question, but what is the most exciting document you've ever found? Oh, there's so many. Okay. So I have to tell this tale because this might be my favorite. We were working on a volume in the 1780s, 1785, where John Adams is the U.S. minister in London. Thomas Jefferson is the U.S. minister in France. They are not quite frenemies yet. This is the height of their bromance. And so letters are flying back and forth. They're the only two American diplomats really in constant communique with each other during a pretty tricky time. And they really do rely on each other for information. However, state secrets are sensitive things. And so they encode their 
material back and forth. And it's a pretty basic alphanumeric cipher. I didn't crack any codes here. It's something that has been cracked for some time, let me be clear. But this was the part that I loved. For a very long time in the Adams papers, the encoded letters between Adams and Jefferson, the encoding was assigned to Charles Francis Adams. It was assumed that he went in when he was preparing things for publication in the 1840s. He went in and he kind of decoded, encoded, made all the notes on it. But, and this is why we collate from the original, we discovered that it was actually Nabby, John Adams' daughter, a 20-something-year-old woman in the highest echelons of secret early American diplomacy who was doing the encoding and decoding for her father because he trusted her to do it. We were able to tell from the handwriting that Nabby really had her ear to the ground in terms of what was happening in European political intelligence. And I really wish we had more letters from her, but she was the one who was doing most of the code work. She was the code girl of the 1780s um, in the American legation in London. And I just, I really enjoyed that discovery because I really enjoyed that it was based on something that is at the heart of documentary editing, which is what's the handwriting like? So I knew it was Nabby's handwriting and I was able to line up really her role in diplomatic history. Well, Sarah, finally, how do you hope people remember your work? As a beginning, I hope they remember it with integrity, but I hope they think of it as an invitation to do more work in the Adams Papers, in early America, in understanding who we consider to be a founder, who we consider to be part of the American story. I really like to think of it as, yes, it's life's work, but I'm handing off a roadmap to the next crew. Sarah, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer for this episode. We received additional support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Head on over to our website for more great interviews or to check out our other podcasts. You can find us at www.georgewashingtonpodcast.com. This happens to be my last episode of Conversations as I'm moving on from Mount Vernon. I want to thank you very much for inviting me into your ears for these past three years. Goodbye for now, and see you out there.